2: saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out came up out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings then as i watched its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it another beast appeared a second one that looked like a bear it was raised up on one side had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told arise devour many bodies after this as i watched another appeared like a leopard (coughs) the beast had four wings of a bird and its back on its back and four heads and dominion was given to it after this i saw in the visions by night a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong it had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had 10 horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the Holy Ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law, and they shall be given into his power, for a time, two times, and half a time. Revelation 13, 1-2, 16-18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God.
1: Get ready, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. So, um, we have been making our way through a sermon series during the summertime. We often uh, will pick a book of the Bible and work our way all the way through it. That is not normally how churches, mainline churches like the United Methodist Church work. We normally work through what we call the lectionary, which is the set of scriptures, and we skip around and we do a gospel and then an Old Testament, but we are doing all of the book of Daniel. But as I said, the second half of Daniel, Um, Was used by John to write the book of Revelation, and so we have to read them side by side. If we are to understand Daniel, and remember, we said that as we read scripture, we read the Old Testament in light of the New, and the New Testament in light of the Old, and so that's where we are today. So, as I was growing up, um, my grandma, um, she had lots of siblings, lived in. when she was a little kid in Alllander, North Carolina. It's this teeny, teeny little town in North Carolina um, outside of Roanoke Rapids-ish. And she had all these siblings. And so I only ever went to Allander when one of my great-aunts or great-uncles died. And I never knew who these people were, but we would all take the the two-hour trip down to Alllander, and so few people lived in that town. It was a town mostly made up of um, trailer parks Um, and a lot of the neighboring towns would support the kids in the school. It was a very low-income school and low-income area, Um, but that's where they grew up. So we would go into town, um, and one year my uncle happened, my great uncle happened to die on the weekend of the 4th of July. And so it happens to be the biggest day in this teeny little town's year, The 4th of July is the biggest day of the year. About a thousand or so people all gather down Main Street. um, And their year revolves around the planning of this, and then the execution of this, and then the start planning all over again of this big parade. About 10 o'clock in the morning, the Main Street will become lined with mostly pickup trucks and grills, and coolers and right around 11 o'clock the parade will start and it starts with this huge flag parading down Main Street on horseback after that will come the two police cars for Allander then the high school marching band for All-Lander, then after them, various other people on horseback carrying all types of things in their hands, and then after that, basically any vehicle that has been modified in any way will be following behind the horseback, folks. And then after that, um, at the very end, of course, is the one All-Lander fire truck. The fire truck pulling up the rear of this parade. This was the biggest day of the year, and this was the only day in the summers that I had come to visit, winters I had come to visit, where I actually liked going to Alllander. In fact, I kept asking, can we keep coming back? Can all the funerals in our family happen on Fourth of July weekend? Um, My earliest memory was sitting on Main Street with my dad, who became, for me, like my own personal tour guide for this parade that was happening. Maybe I was about six years old, and he started explaining to me the meaning of all these symbols that were being processed in front of us. The flag came down Main Street, and he explained to me the importance of the colors of that flag. Red, symbolizing the blood, the sacrifice of those people who had laid down their life for America. White, symbolizing the purity of our ideals, and blue, symbolizing this regal nature of freedom, And then my dad told me to pay attention, pay attention to the numbers that were on display here. The numbers were important when you start talking about the symbols of this parade, 13 stripes, one for each colony, 50 stars, one for each state. This little town had this odd tradition too, I'm not sure if every little town has this, but Allander did, in the middle of the parade, seemed to be on display this number one. Number one seemed to be significant. Two white horses drawing a carriage with a casket came down Main Street, one casket, draped in one American flag, and I guess it was their attempt at like the tomb of the unknown soldier. It was an empty casket, and when it came by, this number one, this one casket, became the most important image and number in the entire parade. And everyone stood up, and they all became silent, and they all took off their hats. And this number one, my, my dad told me, were all the ones that had laid down their life for America. So there were numbers, and there were this wash of colors in this parade, and these numbers had, imp- had meaning. And there were also animals. There were beasts that meant something in this parade. There were always on one particular truck. This truck was painted yellow, and it had this old emblem with a rattlesnake coiled up on it. Apparently, it was one of the oldest symbols of America, warning the British not to tread on us. The rattlesnake became coiled and ready to strike, and my dad explained that to me too, sitting on the sideline of this parade. And then, of course, there was the eagle, clutching the arrows and the olive branches, and as I sat there licking my ice cream cone, as it all runs down my hand in the heat, I just remember being awed by the pageantry and the thick symbolism of all of that and the sense of importance that went along with all of it. And of course, for any elementary school girl, the most important moment was waiting for the old convertible on which sat Miss Alllander, 1992 or 1994, waving her pageant wave and smiling at me. And for my Alllander cousin, John, it was the fire truck that was his favorite part. The fire truck just captured his imagination. He couldn't wait for it, mainly because his father was chief of the volunteer fire department and had the honor of driving the truck for the parade. And sometimes his dad would invite him to jump on board he'd stop. Miss Outlander passed by waving as the fire truck passed by waving and its lights and its sounds and I remember my dad leaning in to whisper something to me, you know Michelle someday you might also get to be in this parade. Daniel's visions throughout the rest of this book that John later uses to write the book of Revelation, Daniel's visions and John's revelation are a lot like a 4th of July parade. There's pageantry, there are symbols, there's colors, there's numbers, and there are beasts, and they are all thick with meaning. They're laden with symbolism, and if, if it's your first time at the parade, it's going to be really confusing. For most of us, we've never seen anything like this before. I was a city girl. I had never seen anything like that parade on display, and so we don't understand what any of these symbols mean. It's almost as if we need a tour guide to bring us to some kind of understanding of them. We need a dad to sit with us and buy us ice cream and say, listen, here's here's what this means, as it processes by. Lucky for us, John, The writer of Revelation takes that role for us, and so we cannot read Daniel without reading Revelation with it. He becomes our tour guide, interpreting and making sense of and applying and contextualizing Daniel's visions for the people and community that he finds himself in, but also for us today. And as we read through Daniel's visions, John's Revelation serves as like a dad leaning in to explain what all is going on. The book of Daniel, situated toward the end of the Old Testament, is an account of Israel in exile. We've already said that before. And the book of Revelation is situated at the end of the New Testament. It's the very last book that has been widely known and read as the account of the end times as when Jesus comes back and the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation fall under this category together as a very particular type of literature in the Bible. It's called apocalyptic literature. Jesus uses a lot of these words during a particular season of the year that is meant to invoke sense of exile. Brett, you weren't listening. Dang it! (laughs) What is that season of the year that I said at the very beginning? Advent. Advent. Thank you. So during Advent, we read a lot of the words of Jesus that are apocalyptic, talking about the end of days. Those are all apocalyptic texts. And Daniel, the second half of Daniel, sorry to put you on the spot, that felt weird. Um, second, (laughs) Second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation are apocalyptic literature. What in the world does it mean to be in a relationship with a God who would need to use this kind of writing, this kind of genre of literature? Why do we have it if it's not a prediction of the end of the world, what in the world is it for? Here's what is important for us to get as we dive into the apocalyptic text for the rest of August of Daniel and Revelation. Here's what's important for us to remember. The apocalyptic literature of the Bible is not some cryptic prediction of the future or the end of days. Instead, these texts are a word for the moment written for people who are being oppressed. It's a word for right here, right now, written for anyone who is under the pressure, anybody who is oppressed. This apocalyptic literature of the Bible belongs to a very distinct period of time, this 300-year history from about 200 BC to about 100 AD, written for a very particular people, mostly the Jewish people in exile or the early Jewish Christians who were being oppressed and persecuted, and the only message that is central to apocalyptic literature is keep the faith, keep going. God will win in the end, we promise you. God has a bigger plan. God's gonna win this thing in the end. Don't give up in the midst of all this pressure. That is the goal of these texts. So under the enculturation and oppression of Babylonian exile, Daniel picks up this form of writing. He thinks it makes sense for his people in this time as a means to tell his story And under the oppression and persecution of the Roman Empire, the Apostle John picks up this form of writing again and looks at what Daniel's written, and he says, maybe my story, this story now, can be written through this lens as well. This kind of writing becomes a tool. They're not a blueprint, (laughs) a tool. That means a means for delivering a message, this message of keeping the faith and withstanding the pressure Two empires, two sets of people, connected across time by a common call, and that call is costing them something. And whenever, whenever the costs are so high, you have to use symbols. Mere words like can't lift the baggage of that at that point in time, and it becomes a means of encouraging people to continue in the struggle, and it becomes a language that only your people get to tap into. Only they know what this means. And there is some kind of uniting force in that. Now the question is then, for us modern Christians, what exactly is the struggle? What is the pressure? It doesn't seem like there is much struggle for us. Mo- we don't have mosques and synagogues being bombed, burned down. I, I mean, we sometimes struggle to get to church on Sundays, but, but, but that's it. What, what is the struggle for us? And so Daryl Johnson, a professor of New Testament theology has this video that I'd like you to see where he talks a little bit about Revelation today. And he talks about what this struggle actually is what the struggle is that John and Daniel are inviting us to be a part of. Could we turn off the lights and take a look at this video? Of course this happened.
0: The last book of the Bible, uh, I think, is a discipleship document. John, um, now I think in his mid 80s or so, uh, is a pastor. He's probably, uh, he probably knows the seven churches pretty well. He made him kind of a bishop, a pastor to the pastors and to the elders and deacons of these congregations. And all those congregations are under pressure. Either pressure uh, to compromise with political pressure, or uh, they're under the pressure of the seductive power of empire, uh, promising them well being through uh, wealth um, and, and through access to the power. But all of these people are under pressure. And John is given this revelation, this Apocalypse by Jesus, to help the people understand the nature of this pressure. Uh, And to understand that the call to discipleship is not a removal from the pressure, but a life in the midst of that pressure, and that Jesus is going to see us through. Technically, the word that's used, and it's translated uh, tribulation most of the time. It should be translated pressure. Uh, Revelation 1 9. I, John, your fellow brother and partaker of the pressure and
1: kingdom and perseverance that are in Jesus. Uh, this word pressure is the word flipsis. I'm not sure I'm
0: pronouncing it exactly right. But flipsis is a particular kind of pressure. It's the pressure that's experienced when you put your hands together and rub them really, really hard. Uh, It's it's the pressure that's experienced when a tectonic plate comes up against another tectonic plate and begins to rub. It's a crushing pressure. And what John is talking about is that when the kingdom of God begins to break into a part of the world, it's going to come up against all these other kingdoms. And these kingdoms either start to cooperate with the kingdom of God or there's this pressure that begins to build. And John is saying, don't panic. If you get caught in the midst of it, it means you're loyal to Jesus Christ. You're caught in the pressure because you're loyal and there's no way out of it. There's just you've got to go through it and bless you. Jesus is going to be there in the midst of it and he's going to take you through and this is going to be part of the inbreaking of the kingdom. Even if you lose your house? Even if you lose your house or your job or your life, uh, you don't lose because you're caught right there at the interface of the inbreaking of um, the new heaven and the new earth. Was John interested in converts?
1: So part of what is so compelling about the 4th of July and all of its pageantry that marches down every main street in America is that everyone gets the struggle and the pressure that it has taken for America to get there. Thick in those symbols there that will prance down main streets are stories of sacrifice and of courage and of giving. And Daniel and John tell us about another parade. Another parade that is much more cosmic in scope, that's not located in one nation, but sweeps across the entire globe, And those who are in this parade are marked with this deep sacrifice and dedication and perseverance. And and the only way to tell this story, just like the only way to tell the story of America is with colors and numbers and beasts, the only way to tell this story is to use symbols. And so I want us to understand some of these symbols today. This is going to set us up for the reading of the rest. what these symbols are, what they mean, because they are most often misinterpreted in a way that is very, very damaging. And so here they are on the screen. So let's take a look at this. Um, You'll notice that there are colors. Colors, white, meaning victory. Red, meaning war or conflict. When you see these colors, you should think these things. Black, meaning lack, a lack of food, a lack of health. Paul, um, sorry, Paul, what's the word? Pale, (laughs) I have Paul on my sheet, I was like, what is this? Pale, um, which is actually literally translated as greenish gray, is death. Anytime you see this pale color come in, it means death. So you have four horsemen, You have a horse of victory, which comes riding in in the grand celebration that in the perseverance of the people of God have continued to win. And then there's red, saying that there will be pressure, there will be conflict. If you choose to follow Jesus in this world, there is no way around that. And then there's lack. And wherever there is lack of food or lack of health or lack of materials, that's where the saints of God should fully be engaged. And then there's death in the struggle. Jesus says, we played the the lyre for you, and you would not dance. And then in comes the palish gray, when you're not willing to celebrate the things that God celebrates. There are also numbers in this story. These numbers become significant. Anytime you see the number three, you should think of God, Trinity, Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, anytime you see three and a half, it means that this won't last forever. This period we're in right now is not everything to see. Number four, if you see the number four, it means creation. The four corners of the earth, I think the four corners of the earth, it's all code for something. If you see the number six, it is one short of perfection. Almost perfect, but it's been perverted in some sense. that it's not quite. If you see seven, it means perfection, wholeness, completion, which is three plus four. God, joined with creation and humanity, becomes whole. If you see ten, ten is completion, but it's like seven plus other things. It's like completion plus more inclusion. Twelve normally means God's people in this story. 12 tribes, think the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. 24 and 144,000 is just a way. Both of them are just ways of saying all of the earth, everybody involved, 12 plus 12, or 12 times 12 plus 1,000. Plus 1, These are symbols. They're meant to represent something. Evil, I, actually, just to notice something, evil, just as a side note, is often represented by as six, or 666, notice that evil is not zero. It's almost right. It's just a little off. It's been a little perverted. And then that tells us how close we can be to evil, right? Often these things are misconstrued though. All of these things are misconstrued. People try to put these together in odd and fantastic theories that like, if we add all the numbers up, then we will know how many people will be saved. And there are actually whole religions based on this 144,000 number that they said we could to count all. Once we get 144,000 people into our church, that must mean that those are all the people who are going to be saved and the rest of the people are doomed to hell. That's, that's not it. That is not what this story is about. And there are people who put together these grand matrix as well, and then they take these numbers and they combine them with the verse numbers there and try to add them up and create algorithms to figure out when the world will end one day. That's not the point either. That is the diversion from the point of these documents. This apocalyptic literature, which is at the heart, it's discipleship texts calling us to join into the struggle until 3 is joined with 4 and completion happens until the world God sees is the world we see and that world becomes a reality there are also beasts all throughout the book as well beasts are always nations when you think when you hear beast think nation there are heads of beasts which you should think heads of nations and then John in revelation uses This supreme language with all these other animals, lions and oxes and eagles, etc. All of these are simply representations of the clashing that Professor Johnson was talking about. All of the clashing forces in the world. According to John's revelation, based on Daniel's visions, according to them, there is this grand procession all over creation of God's people who are joined in the struggle of redeeming a broken world. Faith is not a means of escaping a broken world. Faith is not a means of being raptured out of creation. Faith with Jesus means joining your life with God who refuses to leave creation alone. And folks, it's going to be a struggle. And it's going to cost us something. And if it's not costing you something, you're not doing this life of discipleship right. And if you haven't engaged in the struggle yet, I promise you, somewhere along the way, you'll begin to wonder if it's worth it. If you've experienced the struggle, you're gonna wonder, is this all worth it? You'll begin to wonder if it really matters to care about what God cares about, if there really is an end to what we're working towards. I know the great struggle that many of you have, like that you go through daily even, the struggle just to hold on to your faith, to believe in much of anything at all when life seems to be falling apart all around you and you struggle to figure out where God is in the midst of all of that. I know the struggle that many of you go through just to get out of bed in the morning, that like weight that you can't describe, where it comes, you don't know where it comes from, but it's there and it feels like it's suffocating you. Daniel's vision and John's revelation is that God is there with you even when all you see is a black horse, where all you see is greenish gray. God is there with you. Keep the faith. It's the same message over and over again. Some of you are sacrificing incredibly to build this church for this community that we're in right now. You sacrifice time and nights and weekends and early morning rises and tons of energy. And some of you are sacrificing quite a lot of money too, finding places in your life where you can go without in order to see this community come to fruition. And it's costing you something. I want you to hear that that's not in vain. That's, that's what Daniel and Revelation would say, that that's not in vain. It matters. This sacrifice is worth it. Some of you are beginning to have visions for your life, revelations like John and Daniel, that you're not exactly where you were called to be. Some of you are considering, I've heard your stories, considering, praying, sacrificing entire careers, having grand life changes, because you sense that whatever this is, is not costing you enough, turning away from something that might even be quite lucrative, to follow a call that won't be. Daniel and John would say, keep the faith. It's worth it. Engage in the struggle. God and good wins in the end. And then there's also some of us who are just on the sidelines. Every parade needs the spectators, right? We've, we've pulled up our pickup trucks and popped open our coolers, and we're here to watch this thing happen. And I want you to know that there is room for you too because this is the true procession towards freedom, what we do here, towards liberty and life. It's what we do here. This is the procession that leads towards life here. And these symbols of saints, these, we have our own symbols here. We have our own language here. Have you noticed? These symbols of saints and bread and juice and, are laden with rich invitation for you to join your life and sacrificing something worthwhile is it costing you something if you hear nothing else today I want you to hear this that while the world and the nation parades and struts God is raising up an entire people a wise people who are marching towards redemption and are giving their lives and pouring out their sweat and their livelihood to redeem creation, and there's room for you to be a part of that too. And if you're tired of all the pageantry and the unfulfilled promises and the pain and the emptiness and all the palish gray of the last 24 hours, there is another parade that was started 2,000 years ago. This is the movement of God. And it's like God is leaning down to all of us, like our daddy, to whisper those words, isn't this amazing? One day, you'll be in the parade, too. Would you pray with me? Your kingdom is marching forward, and there are so many other marches happening around us. And when we join into your way, your kingdom, your parade, it's gonna be like flipsis. It's gonna, it's gonna cause friction, it's going to great up against our life and what we want and what is comfortable for us, you're calling us into sacrifice, that there is no sacrifice, there is no wisdom unless there is cost and sacrifice, that that's when we arrive at the wisdom of Daniel is when we've experienced that flipsis in our lives where your way begins to grate up against and rub up against our way, the natural way we would do things. And we begin to pattern our life after you, and we begin to see the world through the lens you see the world, and our heart begins to beat for the things your heart beats. God, as we continue to study these texts, which are, quite frankly, still feel foreign to us, We don't still know why you even want us to learn this. (laughs) What is up with these numbers and these symbols? We ask God that you would help us enter into that struggle, that maybe by that struggle and learning what you have to say to us, we may be able to better enter into the struggle of how you would have us live. And so we join in that prayer with you, God, that prayer it talks about that grind between our kingdom and your kingdom and puts you back on the throne again. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses.